Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Hello and welcome to the Mark Rose Podcast. I've been really excited to share this conversation with you with Dr. Nathan Riley, who is an MD, an OBGYN, and also works in palliative care. And I thought, what an interesting intersection of being able to be there when life is being welcomed in and also being there when life is being sort of ushered or, or observed on its way, leaving the physical plane. And I've always you know, having worked in the medical industry for so long, I've always had a really, a big fascination with the medical side of things, the physiological side of birth and death. And also from a psychological perspective, not only our aversion to the conversations about death, but also our aversions to just the mystical, what happens when we pass and where do we come from when we are brought into this portal and through the portal of such a divine being, the woman, right? Like this act of the sacred portal. And, and in a lot of ways, I'm also curious and concerned and th think about the industrialization of birth and the removal of the sacred from that process. I was very excited to speak with Dr. Nathan Riley because his perspective is so beautiful, this intersection of all these things, but also looking at it from a holistic perspective. And I was reading his about page on his website and I just had to share it because the language of it is just, it's just powerful. At Beloved Holistics, we envision a world in which birthing people are worshiped as the sacred convergence point of the physical, etheric, astral, and other subtle bodies. We envision conception, birth, and death as the natural consequence of love, the creative force of the universe, which is a direct experience with the divine. 
In this world, we thrive through our co-creation with soil, life, planet, and the cosmos. We envision a world that honors humans as embodiments of the highest insight and intuition through which they are free to make autonomous, informed choices pertaining to body, spirit, and soul. Mm, Yes, more of that, please. So let's hop into this conversation. It was amazing. I love this man. You're going to love this podcast episode. Uh, Wherever you listen to it, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please share any that really resonate with your soul so they can get into other people's ears. And that's one incredible way that you can help support the podcast is through sharing and giving it a five-star review and a written review wherever you listen to it. I would, I mean, eternally grateful uh, if you take the time to do that. So thank you. And if you don't have the time, I'm also eternally grateful. Sending you lots of love. All right, without further ado, here he is, Dr. Nathan Riley. Welcome. Dr. Nathan Riley is with me today. And I love what you go by, and I can't wait to understand it a little more and for you, the listener, to hear this conversation. Birth and death doctor. I wanted to say out with the old and with the new, but that's that's <laughs> really not. That's a really bad joke. So keep it, though, because it's good. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you and I kind of bonded on a variety of things that happened between these two these two events, the birth and the death. And, and I'm going to take your joke and kind of flip it on its head. What if birth is the is the ending and what if death is the beginning? We could also reframe it like that. And then your joke becomes completely, <laughs> totally confusing. <laughs> um, and part of the reason I say that is because there's a whole bunch of stuff, I think, that happens, you know, in the cosmos before a baby comes into the world. And so my approach to birth is really, a, it's an invitation for a perhaps even an old soul to come into the earthly realm through this amazing process that we call birth. And so I, mm. I've i had the privilege to sit with, you know, I stopped counting it around a thousand, but it's it's a lot. It's a lot of birth. And when you're, when you're really present with that, you understand that there's, oh, there's way more to this than just a medical procedure as the as the medical establishment likes, likes us to think. And so um, the same goes for death, right? This is not a medical process. This is a part of the journey. So I have that beautiful privilege, Mark, of, of doing birth both ends of that, of that, those specialties, which I think they kind of mirror one another perfectly in, in a lot of psycho-spiritual ways. Both are something we are afraid of because we're never exposed to it. Both mm-hmm. of them are a little messy and both of them make us extremely uncomfortable, so much so that they're kind of the two things we don't want kids to, to be a part of and we don't want to talk about it around the Thanksgiving dinner table. <laughs> Isn't that interesting, so, like yeah. how we are often afraid of talking about death, right? We're afraid of that conversation. We're afraid of, I remember when I was like 13, I think, or 14, my grandmother passed. Maybe I was a little older. And my father said to me, do you want to say goodbye to her? She was in the hospital close to her house. And I had seen her, you know, throughout the week, but I actually missed the moment that she had passed. And I remember being in the hospital room where he was like, oh yeah, there, there she is. And I walked in And he was like, when he said, do you want to say goodbye? I said to him, like, there's no one to say goodbye to. Like, it was this weird, it was the first time Mm. I'd been in the company of a body that no longer had any sort of soul in residence within it. And it was just so so logical to me of like, well, they're not there. It's now just a pile of human. And 
my dad was like, no, you could still say goodbye, you know, like wanting it. And, and of course, you know, I did. And, but it still felt like I was saying goodbye to something that was cold and already gone. I was like, I was like, man, I could probably close my eyes and do it in a much more, and it'd be much more sincere. And it's interesting how we sort of fear, though, as a society, this conversation about death, but yet we sort of like run to birth as yeah. if it is everything. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. And, and I would I would encourage people to think about what like, what happens when this baby comes into the world. Like, you know, we, we're about to have a, another girl, baby girl in a couple of weeks here. And when the baby's coming through this really going through this really, really stressful experience of going through the pelvis and emerging through this very closed and fine space towards the light yeah. kind of sounds a lot like like death in some ways. Um, and the mm. baby emerges. The baby's not fully embodied. Like there's the physical body and the baby that's going and going and hearing mom's voice and looking at dad for the first time, whatever. But the process of actually passing through this, it's sort of like a, a, a butterfly coming out of a chrysocala, right? You emerge and the stress of emerging is actually part of the process of embodying that physical body with the more subtle bodies, the astral, the etheric, and the causal mental. And that stuff takes time. So when a baby emerges, the baby's not even fully the baby yet. The baby is physically mm. there, but you know, the, you see babies look around, it's like they're on an acid trip. And I really do think that they're, they still have like one foot in the astral plane, right? Mm. They're, they're still stuck in the cosmos and there's that tether that eventually is going to be severed, right? As they, as they become more grounded and like kind of, you know, embodied within their, the physical space. And so that should, that should actually prompt us to ask, what is the ideal way for a baby to come into the world? Is there an important something happening here that is more than just the medical thing, right? There's blood loss. There's this stuff that's all over. You have to clean up the mom. The baby's covered in goo. And that sounds gross to us, but maybe there's actually something more important there. And the same goes for death. You know, there's something sacred that happens. And if you're paying attention, there is a subtle shift in energy in the room. Something is leaving. But I would encourage you to consider like, hey, that dead person, the dead body there does not need to be back, you know, bagged up in a body bag and rushed to the morgue. You can actually be with the person still. Like there are still some of those mm. tethers in, in the opposite direction that are still there. Yes, the physical body is 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 no longer alive. Maybe the etheric body has left, but perhaps there's also some other tethers now in the cosmos and some still in the physical space. So with an anthroposophical mm. medicine, they you know with an anthroposophy, you clean the body, you sing to the body, you respect the body, you may even celebrate the body. And in many cultures around the world, we don't rush to get stuff out of the way. Like, oh, the, the dead body, it's going to decay and we're all going to get yeah. disease. Like, no, that's grandma or that's mom or that's your wife or whatever. Like, let's honor, let's honor this in the same way that I, that I, I honor and respect women in birth. That's interesting because I think now about that moment with my grandma and had there been sort of a sacred ceremony of that being able to at least make me... Mm pay attention to the nuance of the energetic mm -hmm. of the room, or even that's even a subject. Cause I mean, that's not the subject. I grew up in a similar, you know, we, you work in medicine. My father did heart research, studied heart failure. I grew up, worked as a rep for years. So I was sort of very much, yeah. if it can't be measured, it doesn't exist, you know, and yeah. it wasn't until <laughs> when it wasn't until I sort of experienced my own awakening uh, to starting to question how things work that I was like, Oh my God, there's like miracles all around us and we're not paying attention to these things. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, like what point did you go from, maybe you always did, but like, was there a point where you went from working in medicine to be in medicine to actually 
beginning to observe that these were sacred acts or were they always sacred to you? And this was just a vehicle to sort of usher or, or be sort of that shaman space within the experience of both arriving and leaving and or yeah. the opposite, if that's the way it actually works or you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been a sub insubordinate my whole life. As you know, I lost my job because I took my mask down talking to a person who was about to take that final transition, which we won't even don't even have to necessarily get into. But the fact that I even did that reflects that, oh, I've been willing to sit with this process, knowing that there's far more to this than contagion at the end of life. In fact, your body is covered with bacteria, viruses, fungi, whatever, inside every canal, all the way through your GI tract. And when you die, it's because that flora actually wins. Nature wins and you get reconsumed for the repurposing of all of your sugars and starches and proteins and amino acids. Everything's going to repurpose, be repurposed by Gaia, by Pachamama, by the, by the, uh, you know, the, the sacred mother, our earth. The earth, yeah. And so, this is going to be a bit of a long-winded answer, but if you're willing to be present with a person, right, not distracted by your phone, not distracted by the electronic health records or the, you know, pharmaceutical rep that's waiting for you in the, uh, hey, in, the uh, hey. <laughs> in the waiting room with like, you know, Panera, right? Like, like <laughs> if you can actually sit and be present with a person when they're going through something hard, it doesn't even have to be birth and death. We all go through hard things every day. You're going to actually pick up on some energetic stuff. Now, maybe that means that I'm a little bit sensitive to energies. I might argue that. But on the other hand, like this is not like, this is not rocket science. This is ancient wisdom, right? And you feel it if you go into the redwoods or even up like pretty much anywhere in Canada, you walk into the woods and you're pretty isolated. There's yeah. a lot of open space up there. So if you go into like a thing that's coming to mind is you go to the redwoods right in the northern california region or on the, the lost coast up in california you are so isolated there that animals actually start walking up to you and it's not because you're some sort of like zen master it's because <laughs> there's just less there's less distraction for your heart fields to be connecting right like it's this is not this is not woo woo this is heart math like you're you've got electricity coursing through you and that creates a magnetic field and that magnetic, my magnetic field is going to interact with your magnetic field, mm -hmm. but I won't notice anything unless I'm actually quiet and still and at, mm. and at peace with feeling that subtle energy. So at birth and death, with all the commotion that goes around in birth, it's clean up the mom, get the placenta out, get the baby wrapped up and tidied up, put a cap on the head so you don't have to see how misshapen the skull is. It's like a liquid ball, you know, when it comes out, mm. put a cap on there, get the baby cleaned up, like give the baby goo in the eyes, like get all this stuff and then package it up so it can be perfectly represented on Instagram. The same at mm -hmm. death. It's the body bags. It's called a mortician. Get this dirty, stinking body out of the house, right? If you actually, though, instead of all the commotion, if you can actually sit back and like close your eyes and just feel what's happening, there is an incredible transformation of spirit happening in both of those regards. But it's not even at birth, just at birth and death. You could be having a really, really hard conversation with your wife, with your partner. And if you're really paying attention you will actually feel how they're feeling. Like this is what we call mm -hmm. empathy. But you can, you can, you know, th this is not like an ancient technology or this is an ancient technology. This is not something that you have to learn how to do. You just have to be, you know, patient and, and focus on it. So part of the reason that everybody's talking about meditation and everything else, like why this is so hot is that people are now using more plant medicines. They get a glimpse behind the veil and then they realize, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, there's actually more to it. So when I was in training, I was starting to feel some of these things. Like there is some real, can I curse on your show? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. I There's don't even think I very... have one that's not explicit. So, yeah. But, <laughs> well, fuck. <laughs> um, 
you know, I, there's that show Kidding by Jim, Jim Carrey on Showtime. And it's like, like he's this Mr. Rogers like character. And he's, he tells his kids like, don't use a bad word if you can use a good word instead. And then later in the show, he's like going through some really tough life stuff. And he's like, you can use a bad word if a good word won't do. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And so, so there's, there's some real magical shit happening in these, in these really important things and, and all around us at all times. And if you can sit with that, I think I was sitting with that and realizing, wow, this is magic. That's why you go into to be an OBGYN. Yeah. You don't go in in order to traumatize women and to force them into surgeries that they don't really want to have or whatever else. You go in because you really want to care about people. And this magic, the, mis- the mystique of this birth process was so compelling to me that I just dove deeper and deeper and deeper until I realized, man, this magic, all this stuff that happens, I don't even need to be there for it. Yes, there's an occasional reason for me to run in and quote, save the day because I have to fix some issue I created for them by intervening when it wasn't necessary. But on the other hand, there's something, there's some magical transformation happening. The more that I muck around, the more that I disrupt that process, perhaps. And so that's such an alternate view. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Keep going. You started what? Oh, no, I was just going to say that I started having these feelings very early on. And then it was about halfway through my training that I started becoming insubordinate. And in a sense that it was (laughs) like, I don't, I don't need to be there. Like they're having this moment. Like I will go in and do the thing I need to do when the time is right. But like, there's no reason for me to be in there mucking around with this otherwise beautiful process. And we become so distracted with what the literature says or what the data says or what CDC is saying that we forget that like, this is a human experience. This is the most profoundly human experience a person is going to live through potentially in their life. And and every woman out there, every person born with a uterus has this capacity so like, what are we missing if we just reduce it to, like you said, the quantifiable, measurable things? What about the quality? Like, what was the, how was your experience? One to 10? Oh, it was a 10. You know, like, where do we yeah, find yeah. experience? Where do we find love and consciousness? Like, we don't cut into the body and find those things. Like, but we know that they're intrinsically important to the human experience. So um, all of that being said, I think it was a combination of me just paying attention and also having some pretty profound spiritual experiences myself that led me to to realize I could care for women a lot differently. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the, oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Way, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. But I think of that transition of state, you know, when you were saying that. I have one quote that always comes to my mind about this, sorry, I wanted, I wanted to mention is from yeah. Alan Watts, where he says, you wonder when you die, what will it be like to go to sleep and never wake up? Did you ever wonder what it was like to wake up never having gone to sleep? Oof. I didn't really get it when I first heard it. And when I started to learn more about death, I just sort of was like, oh, yeah, we don't think about that continuity process. Mm. Like one day you woke up and never went to sleep. You were never asleep. You had never woken up, sorry. And when I when I consider sort of the, my experience in the medical world, which is obviously far less than yours, I think about the sort of mechanistic process of birth. Again, I have not been in the room during a birth. I've been outside the room as friends have had a baby and then seen sort of the joy and elation and the light in their eyes. I have friends who've had, you know, lots of fear during the birth process Mm. and had to get C-sections. I'm actually a C-section child because I'm a preemie. And 
as I learned more about birth and have spoken to you more, I start to see just how, like, is all of the intervention, are all the interventions necessary? And you were speaking to how it's sort of anti-establishment or insubordinate to say, I'm not going to be in the room unless they really need me in the room. And that's such a different way of thinking about it, because, of course, as far as I understand, it's like the OBGYN is in the room in order just in case. But if you're just outside the room, just in case, I mean, is that really any different, but you're sort of leaving the sacred process to the family or the couple? Is that sort of, if I understand it right? Yeah, I think that, you know, back to the heart math thing, right? Like my heart is putting out a very, very powerful electric field. If I get close enough to a person and our heart space is not in resonance, it could potentially disrupt downstream the process of birth. And that might manifest first as, hey, this guy, this strange white guy with, I had a mohawk at one point, so you can imagine just how much they love yeah. that. <laughs> I also Wait, as a, you're delivering babies, you had a yeah, mohawk? Yeah, in residency, I had a mohawk. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. I was not your typical, I have like an arm sleeve, I've got a tat, a ta- you know, a mohawk, and I've got a nose ring. <laughs> so, you know, if somebody doesn't resonate with what I'm putting out there, or anybody putting out there for that matter, it potentially could cause a stress response. And yeah. we know that a stress response can have, you know, some downstream consequences for all of all of our organ systems. And when the body's going through birth, like this is one of the most extraordinary physical expressions, right, that you can possibly imagine. Everything needs to be working on five cylinders, but it does. It does work on all five cylinders. Eight billion times it has over the past however many years, right? However many people right. are on the planet. If you know, and then if you think like a hundred trillion people have ever lived here, like it works. But if you start messing around with it, you you potentially disrupt that process. And one thing that we fail to to measure is what is the influence of stress and disruption on this process? And and I mean, it's a pretty common knowledge at this point. This is like from the Bradley method and from the ecstatic birth community and and some of the more natural childbirth advocates. Mm-hmm. You know, if if a uh, a mammal is out in like on the on the prairie on the savanna right and they start giving birth but then they hear what sounds like a predator coming behind the labor process will stop like that so imagine stopping your car wow. engine like that like it's like it's like the kill switch on your motorcycle you know so that the mom this birthing jaguar or whatever can get to safety in order to give birth to their progeny in a safe space. Like that's a pretty yeah. commonly understood notion but we don't even apply that to like the most complex mammals <laughs> we don't so even when think you, about the stress within the room or the process. Yeah, right. Like the way that we talk to people, the way that we don't look at people, the way that we do non-consensual vaginal exams without telling a person why we want to do them or even introducing ourselves. Like these are the things that I'm harping on right now on, on like a podcast circuit. But like I don't think people really understand like how disruptive this is. So I'm I'm like totally reimagining this. Like you and I have been talking about intentional community. I'm reimagining how could we do this in a completely different way? And I'm doing it in my practice now, like even for non-birth related things, but a lot of birth as well. It's like, hey, here's what the doctor's telling me. What do you think? And it's like, well, what do you think? Like, tell me your story. Like, let's figure out what it is that you want to accomplish and achieve. And only then am I going to start making recommendations. Well, if we look at birth, like how would you, Mark, like to see birth happen? And, and that's a, it's a, it's a impossible question, right? But I think many of us, especially all the birthing women out there know, man, I guess this system that we have is okay, but could we do it better? Absolutely. 
and in so many of the ways we just described, making a person feel safe and comfortable in the herd and, and leading with love and compassion. I mean, really, that's the only way I think we're going to build a new world is if we bring babies in from the moment that they arrive, they're actually arriving in a space of, of gratitude, in a space of love, mm. as opposed to a system that is reducing you to a revenue stream and just trying to save their ass through defensive medicine by applying literature to how they manage birth and justifying their internal bias through a scanning of the literature at every step of the way. What does that look like in the process? Like in the birthing process, what you're speaking to of, did you say defensive medicine and, yeah. and like scanning the literature? So where would we deviate from what would be the natural sacred process? Where does medicine intervene too early or too much? Where we, it's so typical of everything. I'm just sort of thinking okay. about it. And I can't wait to hear your answer because it's so typical of everything that we think we know better than nature, even though nature That's created right. us and can get rid of us in literally the snap <laughs> of her, her finger, yeah. you know, and it's like the arrogance of mostly, I would say the Western intellectual mind. But anyways, yeah, please, where would we sort of have these deviations and that they're about productivity and about fast and revenue and where we lose the sacred? Yeah. Well, as a, as a sort of like, sort of some, some preceding comments that I'd like to say before that, if you consider the war against nature, that's really at the heart of everything. That's, that's at the heart of the problems within evidence-based medicine as well. We try to reduce people to these single variables as if like, hey, what's wrong with my generator? Oh, the spark plug needs replaced. You replace the spark plug and the generator runs like new. Like we know that we don't work like that, but people don't seem to have a better alternative to doing it that way. Mm -hmm. If you look at our, our food production systems, we've done this with food, creating monocultures of soybeans over like 6 million acres of otherwise veritable farmland. Is that the right thing to do? And should we spray, be spraying Roundup on these crops in order to produce one single foodstuff that we don't even want in our diet now anyways? Like, who cares it's about nuts. soybean oil, you know? So in our efforts to control nature, we've done so much damage to the land across the United States, across North America, really. Mexico's mm -hmm. a mess. Like, they am, you know, all over South America, all over the, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa, we have destroyed extraction, soil. Extraction, extraction. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, so when you look at any human process in that way, what happens is we fall into this, into this, we fall into this pit and we're struggling to get out of it because we are trying to use literature right? And a well-done study is actually the, the least generalizable study, right? You've narrowed it down to one specific variable. Forget about everything else. We want to try to make two groups of people in a randomized control trial. We want to try to make them as, as uniform as possible from age mm -hmm. to be by to race to whatever. And then we're going to say, hey, how much blood comes out of their vagina after they bleed if we use this medicine or no medicine, right? Oh, less blood came out of the vagina. So we, since that's this, it's like a false metric for mortality, morbidity. We win, yeah. Yeah, we won. Like, look, oh, so, you know, maybe it's normal for a woman to have a lot of bleeding. Maybe there's actually some energetic reason that she actually has to let out blood, like bloodletting. I mean, who knows? Like, there's a whole bunch of stuff here. And while, yes, like, for anybody listening who has any understanding of the birth world, Postpartum hemorrhage is the number one cause of mortality, if not, you know, between that and like preeclampsia, hypertensive disorders, including stroke. Those two things really cause the most issues in childbirth. But when we then try to apply this technology to prevent postpartum hemorrhage for every woman, even if they're not hemorrhaging, 
it's our efforts to try to manage, like from a population standpoint, we're trying to manage nature. And when we don't understand nature, and we actually are not at war with nature, trying to impose our boundaries on that, that's kind of what has led us to the path we are now. So then if you take in, you know, tort reform or, or the, the sort of litigation issues around healthcare, and then you combine it with this, this new evidence-based medicine thing. I used to, by the way, be like, head like head first into the evidence-based medicine world i was like oh my god if i just can read this literature i can control everything right well that hasn't panned out in the farming it hasn't panned out in ecology it hasn't panned out anywhere right so yeah the way that defensive medicine comes into play here is that when we reduce metrics to just blood loss just infection rates and just healthy mom healthy baby that is an, an effort to reduce nature down to just the quantifiable three things, right? If mom and baby are breathing and well, that's fine. It doesn't matter if they were traumatized or if mom was separated from baby for a week because you were worried about the baby having meningitis, even though the baby had no signs of that. So you, or the mom has a positive COVID test, so you can't let her take her baby home. Like, what about the trauma, the downstream consequences? That's enraging to me. Of separating then. them. Yeah, yeah. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. So, so what we do is we try to apply this data in order to avoid a bad outcome based on these these few reductive measures these metrics and and in the process we're creating all these other problems these harms which is why women are feeling like they're not heard seen or really cared for in a compassionate way and that's because the doctors the nurses and everybody else are held to these very strict parameters as to what we can and can't do in order to avoid a, a five million dollar lawsuit hmm. and now they're being sued because they did those things without consent you know so like this is this is a lose lose wow. situation for all parties involved. So, so I can't even remember your original question, but I think it was really related to like how does it look to leave a person alone versus practicing defensively. <laughs> it was yeah, it was like where does the evidence take away? Where does in the process where would I see the evidence take away the sacredness? Like right, where it's actually right. not necessary versus like where we're doing it for monetary purposes or for yeah. practicing, as you said, defensive medicine. Because to me, I'd never heard that term before, but it sounds to me like it sort of forces the interventionist to to sort of take compassion. And like mm-hmm. compassion is at odds with productivity, efficiency, and reducing litigation risk. Which, yeah. how can those things be in the same room to for a human to practice securely and safely? You know, and, and granted, of course, I know there's people who have, there's obviously fear of malpractice and that type of stuff too. So not to dismiss that. However, you know, the people in the room have the best intentions to make it the best process possible. But how can you do that if you're not free to right. practice the That's art right. of medicine? I mean, the art of medicine seems to have sort of disappeared, especially in the current climate. You know, you're not allowed to prescribe certain things. You're not allowed, you know, it's, it goes yeah. on and on. But yeah. yeah, so where would that, like I think of C-section rates, right? Mm-hmm. Like is that, mm-hmm. that seems to be a big one, at least my understanding of it. Yeah, so I think in the past, so they have different ways of structuring health insurance now, right? Basically, if you're an OBGYN and you have a client come to you, they're eight weeks pregnant, you care for them all the way through, you have the, you help them 
birth their baby, you care for them up to six weeks postpartum, and then your hands are washed of that of that situation. So what insurance companies do is they pay you thirty grand or forty grand or whatever for the entire episode of care from beginning to end, regardless of whether they have a C section or not. So mm. and initially it was actually more so when when white old dudes took over obstetric care from the midwives which started a couple hundred years ago and kind of finalized in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, we basically said, hey, don't go and have a dirty, stupid lady care for you in the home. Come and do it in our fancy hospital where we can keep you safe. And we've got all these fancy techniques that are just going to make you even safer. Well, of course, we haven't seen that pan out. We certainly didn't have 40% C-section rates even 50 years ago. I mean, the C-section rates have gone really, really high. And I think initially it was because of some sort of financial incentive, but there's also this strong culture to do the things that other people are doing. Otherwise, like we were talking about before we started recording, you can't be part of the cool kids club. Mm. So if I were to answer, hey, you know, if I was to be shown like one of these fetal heart rate tracings, which is an unvalidated technology where they pop this Doppler device on your belly and through an ultrasound technology, it sends back a live beat to beat, every couple beats actually, it gives you a, an idea as to where the baby's heart rate is. Hasn't been validated to, to improve outcomes. It's just this thing we do because we think we can measure everything. So we hook it up and if we see certain <laughs> things, ha- <laughs> we hook you up and we see certain things happening, we will rush you to the seat to have a C-section without even telling you about the risks, benefits, alternatives. We just use language like, hey, if you don't want your baby to die, we have to do surgery. So there's a coercion there in order to protect yourself from the the, the loss of, of funds if you were to be sued in the future. So it's not financially driven that it's in the sense that it's more valuable to do a C-section. It's more, it's, it's safer medicine. I'm using air quotes on my end, safer medicine. And it avoids those expensive lawsuits later if we can assure healthy mom, healthy baby, which is a very reductive way of looking at childbirth. So you can control more of the variables, and so it's more predictable that you'll be able to get to that outcome of healthy mom, healthy baby, because you just basically took baby out of mom, mm, out of the yeah. front. Well, not even out of the front door, out of the second floor. You yeah, know, like, yeah, right. right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's not really even true. Like we know that as people have more and more C-sections, like if you're going to have seven C-sections in your life, you want seven kids, you have your first C-section, then somebody kind of courses you into a second C-section. Now every subsequent C-section is actually more dangerous. So we actually have set ourselves up for this really tricky thing. And by the way, it's like 40% C-sections. Like that's why we're so good at 40% C-sections. of the rate. Uh, sorry, yeah, 40% that's, that's, of births are C-sections now. Yeah, that's the average. What it used to be. Yeah. Like, oh, I have, I'd have the, to bring up the stats, but at far, far less. I mean, granted, there's good reasons to do C-sections. I don't, I don't yeah. mean to, to dissuade that, but like, even though the World Health Organization says somewhere like five to 15% of births can be C-section, 40%. And even in some cities, it's like 90%. Like you have a baby vaginally by accident. I know wow. there's certain, certain yeah, parts like in, of Brazil. This is interesting. I remember having a colleague back in the day as a rep who had a C-section scheduled and and like way ahead, and she had connection to medicine. So she, her, her partner worked in medicine. And so they scheduled a C-section mm. for no like emergency reason. <laughs> right, that. Right. And I remember asking why, why not give birth? You know, and again, you're a dude asking this. So they're like, oh, easy. For, but I'm kind of like, listen, if I, this is so easy for me to say. So let me just add the caveat that I'm saying this, <laughs> but I do not avoid pain in any area of my life. I find pain actually very transformative and transcendent. 
If I had the opportunity to participate in the sacred act of birth, right. I would be all in. Right. Now, I can't say I wouldn't get all the things, but I want to say that I would likely not get the epidural mm -hmm. because I actually, I've been in, I've experienced injuries in my life. I've had severe pain. I'm like, I could always tolerate it. And to me, I would feel like that is actually part of the mm. initiatory process. And I'm sure as the father standing beside, there's an initiatory process of sort of watching this. Oh, yeah. Terrorizing, beautiful, sacred act and watching your partner just be a fucking warrior. Yeah. And I really yeah. look forward to that, you know, and yeah. that process, you know, so to get back to what she said, she was like, well, I don't want to get FVS. And I was like, what the hell is FVS? She's like, floppy vagina syndrome. Oh, my God. And I was like, yeah. oh, my Lord. Like, who put that in your head? And yeah. it just made me really sad. Yeah. You know, that, that, I mean, this is what we've done, saying that everyone needs big lips and big asses and big tits and lots of hair as I, you know, mm -hmm. check out my cul-de-sac. <laughs> is, is, and I took a hair loss drug for like four years. And I remember just having this moment of like, who taught me that I'm more valuable with mm. without these beautiful circular mm. places you could do U-turns in, you know, where they were a sense of pride rather than, and, and I, it just made me so sad because it's just so what we've, it's gotten worse since I heard that line because yeah. Instagram right. has made it so much worse. Yeah. But yeah, that, that avoidance of the process because we're afraid that you will be less valuable and less tight, which is, again, mm. part of that like mm. virgin messaging and all the fucking bullshit. It just enrages me. It's so antiquated. It's like archaic. And I mean, the, <sighs> you know, the, you know to, your, to your point about controlling nature, you're right. By doing a C-section, we feel like the outcome is in our hands. With childbirth, it may be more expensive emotionally, psychologically, physically even for a doctor to be there all the time, presuming a doctor even has to be at every birth, which, right. again, I digress. But if you were to actually let labor ensue, it could take days to have a baby. So think about the hospital mm. technology and how, and how expensive it is to be in the hospital for four days of labor. We don't want that because it's too expensive. So let's try to encourage things along. And what we do is we collect data in order to justify having encouraged it along, as opposed to, hey, is it better to do this on a, on a more subtle level, like, like some of the energetic stuff that we're talking about? Of course, we know it's not. But hey, the data says that it, it doesn't contribute to bad outcomes if we were to reduce it just to blood loss and everything else. So now you couple that with language that's like, hey, you don't want to be in labor for four days. Why even go through the pain? Why go through all that process? You don't want your... You know, you don't want what you call floppy vagina syndrome or whatever. Like, by the way, that does not happen if you have a vaginal birth. I can tell you firsthand, you have nothing to worry about there. But I, you know, we'll save that for another conversation. <laughs> the, uh, within six weeks, your vagina, your pelvis, your vulva, everything remodels itself and it almost can't even tell so the difference. Incredible. It's amazing. Yeah. That's so incredible. So yeah, that, that's that standard patriarchal narrative. It is. You know, yeah. it's bullshit. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, please go on. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. 
No, I mean, I was just going to say you combine that the, the way that the media has sort of um, typified the ideal woman, right? Where you have to have six pack abs and you've got to have a tight ass and all this other stuff. If you combine that then with language from doctors who are there to keep you safe and be there for you, like really hold space for you, them saying things like, you don't want to go through all that. I mean, it. of course, you as a woman who's afraid of the process, it's normal to be afraid of rites of passage, Right. Like there's no strength to become right. easy and the easy walk, right? There's a, and, and maybe if you go too hard as well, like you're also on the wrong path. You need to find the towel, right. the, the middle path. But like there needs to be a little bit of fire in order to temper the steel. That's just part of being human. So, so when you combine those two things, these cultural factors that are just propagated by the media as to what an ideal woman is and the language of doctors who are working with a system that's like, hey, we can't have a person... Like the package of money that was given by the insurance company, we don't want to have to take from that 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 pot of money in order to pay for a four day hospital stay. Your Cheerios cost you fifteen bucks, you know. So you know you combine those two forces, and we end up with the situation we're in now, where there's this culture of just just get the baby out through the abdomen, like oh, it's so much easier. It'll look better on Instagram, whatever else. Like we need to get really back to sitting back to being still, being still with the process and what these rites of passage mean. And I think that if we could actually reimagine that together within like an intentional community or something, I really think we could, we don't have to burn the other system down. We just need to create something that is obviously better, that resonates with every man, woman, child as a means of bringing kids, this new generation of children into the world and starting them off right, right from the start, right from when they're born, not traumatizing them, not giving them all this other shit that's going to mess them up. If you're questioning any of this and your criticism comes from a place of being afraid of nature, I encourage you to consider that if you want to deviate Mm -hmm. from nature in any walk of our society, the burden of proof is on you. It's not on me to prove that nature has the right way of doing it. It's on you. Mm. And that's where we're, I mean, we're way off the path of nature with birth and death. The burden of proof is not on evolution. Right. So true. It's had as, nature has proven itself. The burden of proof is now on you if you want to deviate from that. Yeah. And first I want to say back to what I said before, which is if someone has chosen to get an epidural or do the thing, I am not shaming that. I'm saying if I was in it, because <laughs> yeah. as you said, there is a line where that to choose the line that is right for you and whatever anyone's chosen is right for them. In the context of this reimagined world, right? Like we've sort of seen where it might be broken or where it needs to be altered or returned to what we'll call the reverence for the sacred process of birth and death. What I'd like to first explore, what would that look like for, like what would be that scenario? What would be this imagining, this birth center? I mean, how you usher your clients currently, your patients, through this process, what would it be? Just like, pick us oh, on I the journey, that. birth us. I love that. Yeah, I love that question. I, I, All right, so everybody just imagine a center, right? We're talking about a building that's in the, the middle of a space in which you're surrounded by trees, flowers, bees, mm-hmm. birds, animals, cows, pigs, chickens, like you've got it all there. And you have this space, right, where we're going to host women who want to give birth in a very, you know, a very just a compassionate environment that really respects the natural physiologic process of birth. That's not to say that every single person will be able to give birth there. 
because the soil, if the soil is not healthy, pregnancy complications arise. And we know in our country, especially that there's a lot of people whose bodies are already in a state of dysfunction before they even get pregnant. But for the people who would otherwise decide, Hey, I don't know if being in the hospital is the right way to do it. They maybe had a bad experience in the past. They've got, they've got this other option here. So everything from the color, the brightness of the bulbs, not these bright UV lights, but salt lamps, crystals, amber or red color light bulbs, right? That don't disrupt this melatonin cortisol imbalance that we see that, that does disrupt the mammalian birth process and, and causes this fear and stress response. Clean, structured drinking water, right? Using charging stations and EMF mitigation, you know, fill the space with BG3, right? Some of Ibrahim Karim's biogeometry technologies. From even like the design of the building, approaching it with a biophilic design using all eco-friendly resources, right? Where the entire building is grounded into the earth. And we have, instead of right angles everywhere, we have archways. We have so mm. much natural light. We have a central meeting space for all of the families to convene and to share stories. We have a nightly campfire where we drum and dance and sing and, you know, and, and celebrate, you know, celebrate life, the life that's being given right there in this building. And then we feed people food that's, that's through biodynamic farming, regenerative agriculture, regenerative ranching and, and, you know, that, that means grass fed. It means free range chickens. It means all of the stuff that we know that we need, right? Like this is what I do between birth and death. I'm also a holistic lifestyle coach through, through the Czech Institute. And I apply all these principles to women without in helping them avoid oftentimes pharmaceuticals, hormonal contraception, expensive and like really invasive fertility treatments surgery, right? We do all of those things on site. We have workshops there. We actually teach people how to care for one of them, you know, one another. And the whole thing is built around the patient experience of giving birth so that when this baby emerges, the baby emerges to angelic singing as opposed to beeping and, mm. and rough blankets and being tossed around and having goo in your eyes and being shot with needles right out, right out of the gate. Could that change could that help transform the world that we're in if an entire generation of children were born in a space that actually cared for them and not cared as much about revenue and about avoiding the, you know, the, court, the courtroom? The obvious answer is yes. Everybody knows that in their heart. Nobody knows what to do about it. So I'm going to build this. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, man. Well, you know, I look forward to potentially having a birth process in that space. That sounds magical. <laughs> You'll be you know, every, that sounds great. I mean, everything you're imagining is a reimagining of, mm. at least it sounds to me, you know, of like how it has been done traditionally, you know, in obviously with different techniques and songs and ways, but community, you know, welcoming mm. in much like when someone departs, you know, saying goodbye or saying yeah. till we meet again in right. that process of, you know, everything you're speaking to reminds me of just, as you said before, the parallels to how we treat the planet, how we treat our soil, how we treat right. our bodies, how we treat food, how we treat everything, even time. You know, we are constantly so in a rush that everything's about getting to the next moment and the effects of technology mm. that it's like, we are being extracted from our attention spans are constantly being extracted from to right. monetize them. Right. And we're doing the same with how do we get as much as we can from our earth? And then we're like throwing out foods that could feed people. And, you know, to me, it's just right. like, right. I don't right. have the solution, but I know that there's a giant problem and I want to participate in the solution. And the only way that we can all move towards that is the conversations we're having. 
That's right. Yeah, I mean, in everything that you just said, it stems from this very strong cultural predisposition to an illusion of scarcity. When people tell me, where is the money going to come from? How are we going to feed the world? How are we going to blah, 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 blah? We have so much money, especially in the United States, that instead of building, I I have a friend who works on Miramar's Air, Air Force Base. He's a Marine and he's like their PR guy. And he was driving me around the 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 whole airfield at one point he was like see that fighter jet over there that cost the u.s government 1.2 billion dollars to produce one freaking fighter jet and by the way this is one of those jets that flies in at like 300 miles per hour and then stops on a dime and then rotates to look at you and then can blow you up (laughs) so (laughs) like awesome technology what if we actually put our resources and our social and intellectual capital into creating better batteries like a battery that will never die. You charge it with the sun and it lasts for a year. I'm not saying that that's even possible, but I'm pretty sure that if we can create a fighter jet that does that, that we could create all kinds of innovative ways in order to not exploit the earth, but actually to become reharmonized with the earth and with one another. But instead we use technology as, as a means of dividing and conquering. And so I'm also not promoting that we go back to some sort of primitivistic you know, archaic lack of cell phones and all that stuff. Like these tools are, these things are freaking amazing what they can do. And these computers and like our technology with sound and video, like there is a lot of good technology out there. But when that technology starts to be applied as a means of controlling nature and controlling other people, we end up in, in this sort of what Charles Eisenstein calls the story of separation. And what we really need to do is all of us hold hands, me and you, Mark, we're going to hold hands and we're going to gallivant across a minefield of pain which is, which is relinquishing this story of separation yes. in order to see this new story emerge that we all know, we all know how we want to feel. We all want to be accepted. We all want to feel cared for and loved. We don't want to have to feel like we have to defend our shit arm and tooth right, in order to live a... To yeah, no, go ahead. Well, being go ahead. so vigilant yeah. all the time. Yeah. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. You know, and we're doing that with viruses. We're doing it with, it's like, can I disinfect myself enough to never have a cold or a flu or anything again? And not to negate the fear that we generally have because we have been inundated with fear for, I mean, if you watch the news since the day you started watching the news, you know, and it's, it's sad that it's like it bleeds, it leads because of our negativity bias that we have as humans. But like to be in a rest and digest state requires that you're not consuming all this shit. And I think of like just the, we, we've been set in such a masculine cycle mm-hmm. of exploitation mm-hmm. and extraction that what you're saying about birth is exactly like the invitation back to the sacred reverence for the feminine, for the birth process, for life, for Gaia, for soil, for, and then it gives back. Like that's the yes. thing is if you, it's like how everything works. Right. Man, I get enraged by this, but, but like passionately excited about, like you can always feel 
on a cellular level, not cellular to be confused with, on a cellular <laughs> level, right? On a cellular level, when something is true, when there's a sadness that's true, a grief of the earth is our grief. Right. Uh, yeah, and I, I'm kind so, of reminded so we need death to, now. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm always reminded back to college when I, I went on a semester at sea. I went on a semester abroad on an old retired cruise ship where they sail you around the world and you stop in various ports. It happened, so happened that I was at the University of Pittsburgh for college and that was like the sponsor. So my mom worked for the university. I, cool. I got this trip for free. Otherwise, it was like way more money than my family would have been able to afford. But I had this the privilege of seeing one country after another. And I went in kind of conservatively minded fiscally. Like, you know, I work hard for my money and this and that. And that's all true. I'm not, I'm not going to disparage people to, from thinking like that. But then you see like, oh, in Brazil, there's these systems of control. Oh, in, in South America, South Africa, there were these systems of control of like trying to control other people for the benefit of the few at the expense of the others. And, and that's okay. But like, oh, in Mauritius, India, Burma, Vietnam, Hong Kong, China, Japan, like, this, these systems of control are everywhere. And there's, and when I went home, I was like, mom, like the history of the United States is kind of fucked up, you know? And, but she was like, she was like, well, if you can think of a better world, then you can go live there. You know, I don't, I don't mean to throw my mom under the bus, but she's, she's in a very different space, I think spiritually now. But when you're working in this rat race of like, just make the money to pay the bills to like move on to the next day and do this whole thing over again, when people tell me like, well, you know, how is that going to be possible? How is it, you know, how are you going to save for retirement? Like they bring up all these, these components of the right. story. If you have a billion dollars in the bank, but you're, but you're living under the umbrella of a government that doesn't let you have any freedom on how you love people or, or compassionately exercise your wealth, then what good does it do? Right? Like if you're not doing the things that the government wants you to do with your money, like paying property tax, which is the dumbest fucking thing in the world. Cause like that piece <laughs> of property is not mine any more than it is the government's. It belongs to mother earth. But if, if like we're going to adhere to those principles and those are going to be the main obstructive processes to that new world that, that I was talking to my mom about, then like, yeah, maybe there is no hope, but people like me and you, you know, mm -hmm. we were just talking about having like a, a freedom forum, right? Whereby the, like your wealth is actually has nothing to do with the number of fiat currency, you know, coins in your piggy bank, it actually has way more to do with how you connect and interrelate with people. In mm. this new story of interbeing, again, as Charles Eisenstein described it, this new story of interbeing is going to require us to not continue to rely on these technologies of, of division and separation. It's actually going to be, it's going to really require us to be doing more of this and just getting to know people that you normally wouldn't get to know and to drop our judgment and, and to not think like, if I was in government, I would do things differently. Bullshit. Yes, you would. Because that's the story. Like you are still a part of the story of get as much shit as you can and hold right. it off from the rest of the world until they want to, they pay you your, your asking fee. That's not, that's not mm. the vision I have for the world. I do love having money. Don't get me wrong, but having lost my job and losing the big paycheck has never felt so good. And I, I know that that sounds crazy to a lot of people, but mm. like I have the freedom to build a world with you, Mark that you and I can both feel good about whenever we talk to our kids and we talk to our grandkids, you know? Um, yeah. I had the same feeling when I left pharma, like it was, I was there for 14 years. So it was like, I had golden handcuffs, you know, I was with oh, the same yeah. company for 13, yeah. you know, making really good money, working smart, not as hard as maybe when I first began. <laughs> and I left into the total unknown of like, how was I going to pay rent in my apartment? How 
you know, was I going to do this work? But I had to go. Yeah. And, it, and you know, I, I think sometimes it's like we get a pack, we get fired, we get, you know, let go, whatever it might be, we leave. No matter what, it is an invitation to get into alignment with what your soul is calling. Oh and yeah. 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 And it's like, if we, and that's like part of that self-abandonment of like, I'm getting paid to to participate in this system and not be in my heart fully. Not to say that we can't do work we're doing and still be in our hearts, but like it's kind of off. Mm. So it's like, in a way, it's part of the prostitute archetype, right? Where we're like participating, selling parts of ourselves to be part of this. And I'm so inspired by the people who say, I will not be coerced. I will lose my work. I will. Yeah. And what a thing to have to face when they say you have a choice. No, you don't. You don't have a choice. Really Alternate choice is putting food on your fucking table <laughs> and paying your rent or participating in society. And, you know, it's that's a whole other can of worms. But I think what's what's beautiful of sort of how this conversation is coming around is like that all requires being able to face death. Mm. And I remember hearing Stephen Jenkinson talk about Love Stephen Jenkinson. To, yeah. Yeah, such an interesting guy. And I remember him I forget who he was being interviewed by, but the person said, our relationship with death, you know, we have an interesting relationship with death. And Stephen said to him, there you go doing it again, distancing yourself from what it is. It is not a relationship with death. Death is. Is. And, right. And like, if we can't confront mortality, which is the most freeing thing when we do, we can't even experience these small D deaths that are required the death of the part of me that was a rep, the death, the part of me that was defensive, the death of the part of me that believed my partner needed to be perfect, the death of the part of me that believed I was unworthy. Like right. all these need to die and even trying to save people from the experience of suffering. I think it's all part of our own mm -hmm. inability to suffer ourselves and to recognize the transcendent alchemical yeah. experience of suffering. Anyways, yeah. so please... Part us with your death wisdom too. Well, yeah. So <clears throat> before I even do that, like the coercive language you just described about, you know, hey, you have to do these things. It's your choice, but if you don't, you can't feed your family, right? I mean, that's exactly right. why I had to have been fired. I would never have lost. I never would have left the job, I think. I mean, maybe eventually it would have been so agonizing for me to stay in the corporate world, like working and making money for somebody else at the expense of patient care. I mean, that just sucks. But the universe was like, nope, now's your time. And bam, I felt the same way you did. So I wanted to just acknowledge that and honor you for that because it's not easy whether you decide to leave your job or you're kind of kicked out. I needed to be kicked out, but that was my story. But I'm um, back to the coercive language in birth. We use that same language you just described with the, with the workforce thing. We use that as a means of, of getting women to have C-sections that maybe otherwise wouldn't need to happen. But like, hey, the end of your shift is coming up. You don't want to pass this patient on to the next person and then have them question how you manage things. So like, listen, I'm a little bit worried about the baby. Like, well, can you tell me about a C-section? Well, C-section is the only way to keep your baby safe. You don't want your baby to die. Like, I, I'm a little bit worried about the baby. Let's just do a C-section, right? So basically what that, what that is implying is if you don't go along with my recommendation, you must want your baby to die. Mm. It's like how, how you're open to take that risk. Yeah. 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 Like, Hey, you know, I don't want your baby to die. Like, do you want your baby to die? Like if you say yes, that makes you seem like a psychopath. And if you say no, then like, well then just come along. Let's go to the operating room. That's yeah. how we do that. You, you're trapped. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so at the, at the very, very end of life, remind me what your question was again. I'm sorry. You got me kind of fired just up. Just about that. <laughs> well, I want to honor people who choose to stay for survival because yeah. that 
a hundred percent honor that choice because that's necessary. Right. And my question was, how do we start to turn towards yeah. death or even orient to death? Because we need to do that yeah. to experience deaths that aren't literal in our lives, like the ending of a relationship, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So a good, I think a good example of this is, let's say that you're in, in full-blown lung failure, like respiratory failure or heart failure or whatever, you're going to probably need a ventilator, but you're 95. So if I say to you, hey, if, you know, in order for, for you to stay alive, we're going to have to put you on this machine, you may never come off the machine. There's two ways of going about that. A person might say, well, to hell with that. I don't ever want to, quote, give up. I want to be on a ventilator and be kept alive until a until like you have to just, you're forced to pull the plug on me because I'm, there's no more life there or whatever, right? Like you could, there's all kinds of language. On the other yeah. hand, you might say, you know what? I've lived 95 years. This is the best thing that could happen to me because now I actually get to go on to the next phase. Culturally, mm -hmm. that's not most, that's not very common. Interestingly, a lot of religious people actually have a very, very, they're a little bit more satisfied because they, they think they know what's going to happen afterwards through my own mm, spiritual relationship. Yeah, exactly. Like they've thought more about this than just the reductive kind of materialistic way that many of us think about things. And through my own experience with ceremony and with altered states of consciousness, I've been there and I'm not afraid of Same. it, but that doesn't mean I'm not really afraid of dying. I'm just like, wow, that is, that's going to be a hell of a rite of passage. And someday that right. will happen. But present in both of these stories about birth and death is this fear of safety. We grapple with safety every single day. And your likelihood of going out and getting a massive car accident on the highway is higher than the likelihood of you as a young person getting COVID and dying. Sorry to bring COVID up. But yeah. when people think of any possible threat, they start to weigh the risks and benefits of adhering to the recommendations in order to subvert that threat. And the COVID thing was a perfect demonstration as to how people are so afraid of the possibility of dying, right? Like it's less than 1% chance that me or you would die of COVID. Yeah. It's probably even less than that, but I don't really care to make this conversation about that. But let's say that I gave you a less than 1% chance of dying from COVID. You have two options. You can stay inside and never go and hug your parents, never have sex with a stranger, never go to your favorite bar or dance club. Like you can't do any of those things, but you can be alive as long as your body keeps going if you lock yourself away in the house. That's one way to go about this. And I'm not blaming anybody for doing that, especially if you're immunocompromised. Maybe you should stay home. I don't know. That's, that's not my decision. On the other hand, you could say, well, fuck, that sounds like a pretty crappy life. I know I have to die. Never, I didn't get a vote as to whether or not I have to die someday. That's a part of the human experience. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I get a vote on is how I live my life and how I die when the time comes, right? I mean, most people get a choice. If you're in a massive car accident, I guess not. But, but you know, like the choice is how you die is that conversation around ventilators or CPR and everything else. So in birth, the same thing is, you know, the same thing is present. You have a less than 1% chance of your baby dying. So let's just do a C-section, all right? Because mm. I do so many of them that mm. I'm so great at it. Or... Do we accept that there is some inherent risk of childbirth and we honor the sacred experience of childbirth, right? To hell with the risk. Like this is an important human experience and we're going to engage in that. 
in the same way mm-hmm. that it's an important human experience to go out and hug your parents. So our grapple with safety has led us to a complete perversion of germ theory, right? Like, let's sterilize yeah. the body and see what happens. Well, now we know the gut flora and the skin flora and everything is just as important <laughs> yeah. as anything. Now I can't digest anything. Yeah, right. GI issues, I've right. got emotional right. challenges, so yeah. poor immune systems fucked because right. 90% of my, is it 90% of your immune systems? It's your like Whatever, it's a 70, lot. But that's a, that's a lot. 95 <laughs> of your serotonin, percent of your serotonin receptors. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's a lot happening in that gut. Right. So if we sterilize everything, yeah, just disinfect it. What could go wrong? Right. And now we're learning the the sort of downstream consequences of that. So, so when we talk about death, it's very, very important that we remember what I said. You do not get a vote as to whether or not you die. And no matter how hard you want to wish it away, Kurzweil and all these guys that just want to live forever, no matter how hard you want to wish it away, there's absolutely no way to get around that. And that is actually a blessing. Because your Mm. biologic tissues are going to get older and your soul and your other subtle bodies are going to have to move forward. That is a part of this cycling, this rebirthing process. This is what nature does for us. And nature is like, hey, you guys need to listen to me. You guys need to listen to me. Don't bury yourself in a lead lined casket covered in concrete. Listen to me. You're going to become a part of this. This is the circle of life. We need this. This is actually how we sustain the planet. Nature is not here just for your taking. Nature is here to imbue you with these incredible physical sensory properties to live a really great fucking life for 95 years. Maybe 100 if you're as healthy as you are, Mark. You won't have as much hair. (laughs) I'll just have a full blank field. It'll be perfect. (laughs) Right. Right. You'll be like a glowing hologram by then. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, you know, confronting ourselves with mortality is ever present in birth and death. But every single day when you come home to your wife, give her a big, wet, open mouth kiss. Like this is what makes life so rich. And I mean, this is so cliche to talk about. But if you're afraid of dying, don't ever get on a snowboard. Don't ever get on a ski lift. Don't ever muck around with the electrical equipment in your house. Don't ever get in a car or an airplane because heaven forbid something bad happens. Like the richness in life goes out if you can't confront your own mortality. Amen. I mean, that argument that I've heard many times of like, yeah, but are you open to taking up a bed that someone else needs? Mm. And I'm like, I surf, I snowboard, I mountain bike. Right. I am at way higher risk of all those things. Should I, you want, can I not do those things anymore? Right. Like right. there's this interesting line of like, we've stopped taking responsibility for our health. We do not talk about, you know, we don't take responsibility for ourselves. And you talked about safetyism. And I think safetyism is a very important topic these days. I recently read Coddling of the American Mind, and I've spoken about it on the podcast podcast before, where he talks about how that parenting style of like helicopter parenting, how it led to safetyism. And then we have like the lowest chance of getting abducted as a kid, but yet we have the most fearful type of parenting. And then the type of kid that creates is one that is afraid of any resilience. And that started in the 90s. And so now all those kids just finished college. And there (laughs) you think of like, cancel culture is part of that because no one has any resilience as opposed to I heard someone differentiate accountability culture is different than cancel culture. And even this idea, though, of canceling of like, well, being that accountability is like, of course, if someone's a rapist or a molesters. I mean, they should be held accountable 100%. The interesting thing is like even how we deal with people's challenges and mistakes they make in their life or a tweet they made in 2004 that we're like, 
we we don't actually even participate in the restorative process mm-hmm. of restoration of growth of learning even our our punitive prison systems oh, yeah. are about that i mean if i was a marijuana dealer and i'm in jail right now i'd be fucking enraged <laughs> like the government is making so much money and companies are making so much money and here these people like it should i think of how much countries would save by retroactively letting out these people who were really you know i'm not saying all drug dealers are good people but like we're like giving we selling weed like and again not to, if you don't like weed and you don't agree with it sure but still the irony of that you should be mad at the government too it's just it, how we handle all of this, like this fear of everything, uh, it just makes me, because we have no compassion anymore. We have no empathy anymore. And if we don't have compassion and empathy for other people's processes and mistakes, it means we don't have them for our own. Right, right. Yeah, there was an interesting study about the Good Samaritan Law. I think it was somewhere in Yale, perhaps. They had these three groups of students who were going to give presentations on Good Samaritan Law. And they had the first group they were all going to be going across campus to give their presentations at different times. The first group, they told them, you guys are late. You got to head over there right now. So they rushed across campus. The second group, they were like, you still got some time, but you need to hurry. Like you need to be on, on, on point. The third group, they were like, your presentation's not, not for a long time. So like take your time, but maybe make your way over there whenever you have, you know, the opportunity. So the, the groups head out, right? One is very expeditious, the other middle ground, and then the other is kind of lollygagging. Well, at the building that they were going to be entering to give their presentations, they had an actor there posed as this like homeless guy that was in really, really bad shape. And of course, they wanted to see that the experiment really was which students stop and why. And you guys, you, you probably can guess the answer. The students that were lollygagging didn't have the pressure of our society in order to, to like get to mm-hmm. the thing on time. So they actually stopped and aided this gentleman. The other two groups just had to practically step over him to get into the building. So the reason I bring this up is that everybody says like, well, if I was in that position, I would have stopped, right? But we know from time and time again, so many social and psychological experiments have shown, even that shock, remember that shock test where they like- Stanford prison experiment, I think it is. Yeah, well, Stanford prison was when they actually had guards and they had prisoners. This one was similar, but they they were like administering shocks to their students. I remember that one, and they could hear them screaming and they could turn it up. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so when you think about all these things, we as individuals in this very separate, separated sort of environment, we think well, if I was in that position, I would have done things better. We think about this as politicians and everything else. Like, no, you wouldn't. You would actually do no. it exactly the same as everybody else, despite how virtuous you think you are, which should really force us to draw into question the judgment we have on other people. Like if you're 100%. judging somebody else, this is that is more of that story of separation. If you're judging other people, you're saying right and wrong. And we all know that your environmental factors that play into our decision making are far more complicated than good and evil. We know that. Now, granted, like you said, if there's a person out there, you know, you know, gunning down people in the street, I probably wouldn't do that, right? But right. But if we're going to apply this judgment theory to even something as simple as helping a homeless man on the steps of the of the building, that seems like a pretty easy thing to do. But so many of these students who are educated, who are giving a presentation on Good Samaritan law, like they understand right. this. They've been thinking about <laughs> it. They're about to present on it. If they're not even willing to do that simple little task, which may have been just, hey, checking in on him, are you okay? Do you need anything to eat or drink or whatever? You know, they don't do that. So, so what I'm trying to get at is that when we live our lives 
from the standpoint of I am virtuous, I am good, I can do no harm, it really um, really is in conflict with the new story of interbeing. This this new story mm. of of like we are all one in this. And if your neighbor is suffering, you are also suffering. You can't just silo right. off your resources and say, well, that dummy didn't work hard enough. Like if you were in that dummy's shoes, you would also be in probably the same love. social. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like nobody's a self-made man. This whole like idea that you just got to work hard and no pain, no gain. Like it doesn't work in the new story. That is a part of the old story and we need to abandon that. Right. It's part of that continued extraction of human capital. That's exactly human, what it is. Right? It's exploitative through and through. That's right. I think of social media as that too, of just like how social media says, if you do things a certain way, then the algorithm will turn you up. And so they're rewarding you for certain behaviors for pointy dance videos or whatever the fuck it is, <laughs> you know, and, and like, if you and, and even that recent data that came out about how Instagram increases the mental health challenges for young women. Yeah, well, of course it does. It's like, you're going to be judged and commented on by strangers. Mm. And you're presenting your body to do that. And of course, that's going to cause an immense amount of depression and anxiety and fear about what people are going to think. And then you're also getting socially rewarded for presenting yourself sexually. And that could be true of like how men are rewarded to, et cetera, et cetera. It's, but I think it's like more, I had Laura McNally as a psychologist I had on who spoke about how the difference is, is that boys, when they're young, their bodies are judged based on performance, speed, like I'm the fastest kid in the class, I'm the strongest, I'm yeah, right. good in arm wrestle, blah. But girls are actually studied, judged for how their body looks as opposed to how it performs. Mm. And I was like, that's very fascinating. So like the Instagram is really the mm. perfect weapon in order to extract from that. And so when you look at social media, I mean, it really is in that social dilemma, they say, like, if you don't know what the product is, like, if it's free, <laughs> you're the product. And as someone who creates on social media, I feel that extractive nature of like, if I don't do these things a certain way, then my reach goes down. And it's like, okay, well, at some point, like, now I'm at the point where I'm like, fuck that. Like, I'm not mm -hmm. playing this game anymore, because I'm not liberated in my relationship to it. And I think, all of us need to look where in our lives are we not liberated. But I think of something Chomsky said, I recently watched a comment where he said, like, there's actually no worse treatment of humanity than a corporation. Mm. You have to wear these clothes, you can go to the bathroom and lunch at That's this right. time. Yeah. And if you don't do these things, you, you could just leave. That's sort of the capitalist mindset. Go somewhere else. And he's like, well, find but you can't. body. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, you can't because you can, but you won't be able to eat, much like, you know, our previous conversation. Yeah. And I think it's in that nature of, like, just continuing to witness, even in relationship, if you can't tell the truth or leave or do it because mm. they, they pay for everything, you're not liberated. Right, right, right. And yeah, it's like, how do we liberate ourselves within this system? Yeah. Solve that, please, Nathan. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on it right now. I may do some, the one, uh, got it, okay. <laughs> uh, it immediately makes me think about, you know, back to the healthcare system. You know, people are, uh, you know, I'm like $470,000 in debt from medical school. So that's a, that's, that's some, that's some fine cheddar right there. And that's, that's <laughs> no small chunk of, that is a giant, 
overwhelming, insurmountable amount of debt. And fortunately, there are some loan forgiveness programs and whatnot that I'm enrolled through. So hopefully that will be forgiven. But let's say that I wasn't enrolled in that. And I'm looking back at my education. And at some point in residency, when I got my nose ring, I was walking on Venice Beach and I told my wife, I was like, we were walking, I was wearing a cowboy hat and like speedos, like, you know, just being myself. (laughs) And so I was like, we were walking past one of the piercing spots down there. And I was like, I think I'm gonna get my nose pierced. And she was like, if you do it, I'll do it. So she got her septum pierced. And I got my nose like, you know, Tupac style here. And so I like it. Yeah. Then I went into work and they were like, what's that on your face? And I was like, well, it's a nose ring. And they said, you have to cover it up. So I like slapped one of those big ass bandages right on my face. And they were like, you got to use a smaller bandit. I was like, this is the only one I have. And they're like, well, then to take it off and just They're like, like they didn't know the what hospital. to do with me. We they were lives. like, you're yeah, an yeah. asshole. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so when I related that story to like my mom, she was like, are they okay with that in the hospital? I was like, I don't care if they're okay with it. Like they tell me when I can piss, when I can shit. Then my, my program director told me at one point, you know, your wife is going to have to come second now that you're in residency. Oh like, my God. Um, so basically you, you can have sex when we tell you, you can have sex well, you can laugh, smile, cry, use the bathroom. You can, you can only do those things when we say it's okay. And if you don't like it, that's okay. Exercise your freedom, but you're not going to be in this program anymore. So imagine having gotten the, the black star of, 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 you know, of, of embarrassment and humiliation, having to go and look for jobs. And they're like, oh, it looks like you didn't finish residency. Why not? Well, I, you know, I liked having a, a romantic relationship with my partner and I liked actually being able to use the bathroom and not have to snarf down crappy hospital food in between surgeries and like, just didn't really like that part. And they might see it as like, oh, you weren't strong enough. You weren't tough enough to get through the training. Right. Like, and the residency program just finds another resident to replace you. Like, they're such highly coveted. Right. Spots. It's so hard to get in. So imagine I would have left. I would have still had $470,000 in debt. I wouldn't have been able to get a job as a doctor. And I wouldn't have gone into fellowship to learn how to do hospice medicine. So like, is that really a choice? Or do you still need to adhere to the pooping and peeing and whatever schedule right. of some corporate monster you know, it's, I mean, and that, so that translates into patient care. Like we've do dehumanized doctors to such a degree yeah. that they now don't even know how to care for themselves. Like they, nobody's telling me when to poop and pee. What do I do? And, and then of course they apply that same deep trauma to the way that they care for the nursing staff and for the patients and the patient family members where it's like a, Hey, buckle up buttercup. Like you know, suck it up. Like, this is just how life is. Life is hard. You got to work hard to, to play hard and blah, blah, blah. Like all these platitudes we use to justify the cog, you know, through cognitive dissonance, this, these just poor behaviors of treating one another, you know? So Mm. that was a bit of a diatribe, but it absolutely, what you said really resonates with me. Yeah. That, that needing to dance, you know, like right dance, monkey dance. You know, I think of that, like when I was a rep, my first training I ever did, I crushed. I like won all the competitions and came back. And this is out of like 140 people. I was super proud of myself. And I came back and I had a thumb ring. And I came back and the review I got, my boss was like, he's a great guy. He was like, listen, I heard you did really good. Got lots of reviews. There's just one issue. And I was like, what? And he's like, they said you had a thumb ring on. (laughs) And I'm like, what? Like that's that's the thing like that's out of all the accomplishments i had that's now and i i was supposed to sign this feedback and i said i wouldn't sign it like i was like i'm not signing that like that is irrelevant god and and i'm like it's my meanness that makes this it like i come with the thumb ring yeah you don't like it <laughs> it's a package like, deal <laughs> right and 
I didn't sign it. I didn't have to. They changed it. And then I signed it once it was changed. But like a lot of people wouldn't stand up. And I was lucky because I had parents who speak out and parents. And so, you know, I, I had the socialization that it was okay to do that. You could argue also my societal positioning helped oh, yeah. me do that, that Absolutely. I'm a male, that I'm white, that I'm right. Like, right. And yeah, you know, I, as we sort of sort of come full circle on this, I am curious because I think those again, all speak to ways that we have to be willing to die to really live. Yeah. And I'm curious, what does it mean in all your experience of ushering people through the exit, maybe the entrance coming back. <laughs> yeah. What does it mean to sort of, and, and this might be hard to answer, but like, what does it mean to really to die good death or mm. to like do that with, with reverence and sacredness, you know, just in your experience, like when were the most prolific or most touching or most moving exits? Well, you know, it, I've said a lot about birth as well. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and I could probably apply a lot of that same language, but I also want to encourage everybody that everybody's birth, ideal birth is going to be completely different. The way that I described an ideal birth is not going to be everybody's ideal birth. I think yeah. the issue I have with how birth is done in the hospital is that everybody is packaged into the same box and they're, it's sort of demanded that you have the birth the way that we want you to have the birth. Otherwise you can't birth here or otherwise, you know, you're a bad patient, right? So, so with that in mind, in an ideal death scenario, I describe my ideal birth vision on a property that I'm going to build at some point here in the near future. I feel like death for me would be similar. Like while we're coming into the world with less distraction and more presence and compassion, perhaps we should be exiting the world in that way too, because this is a hard, this is hard work to die. And mm. that hard work is the body is, is down ticking. The body is slowing down. Perhaps we're getting flushed with DMT endogenous from the pineal gland. I don't know. But the hard work of dying is no different than the hard work of birthing for the baby. And I think it goes sort of in reverse. So why wouldn't we be accommodating people at the end of their life with the most quality food, the best, most compassionate touch with sound, like sounds that are more healing? Like there was this great talk that I can send you a link to. I think her name is Yuki... Uh, I can't remember. It's a Japanese last name. And she, she's, a, she's a composer and she started recording sounds. And then she gave this talk at an Enwell, one of the Enwell talks in San Francisco, which would be really cool for you to check out. She gave this talk about, you know, like what sounds, what, what do I want my final sounds to be? And when you think about having it in the hospital, the beeping mm. of all the, the infusions and the opening up and closing of the door and the bright UV lights and the constant chatter about the medical stuff without holding space for the hard work spiritually and, and psychologically and, and etherically. Yeah, yeah, like there's hard work that's happening there. This is not just a quantifiable experience. Again, it's quality over quantity. So for most people, if they were, if you were to ask most people, they would probably reflect the same. Like I want to be cared for. I want to feel safe and warm and I want to have great food. It's my final couple days. I want the best meal possible. Yeah. And I want to be surrounded by the people that I love, not people covered in masks and hazmat suits and doctors that are unwilling to touch me. I want to be touched and loved and cared for because I have a 95 year legacy behind me. So for me, that would be a good death. For everybody else, it's going to be a very different answer. So it's almost not a fair question. But I do think mm. that if we're going to treat death as a medical process, we're inevitably going to be on the wrong path because it's not a medical process. This is a human experience. And the experience matters. 
little side story I'll share is that when I was in fellowship, there was a woman, she's Buddhist. They were, a whole family was from Thailand and she was like a practicing Buddhist. And so she was in the hospital dying of probably like, I don't know, it was like metastatic lung cancer or something. And she was obviously in pain. So the nurse called me down. I was the fellow and they called me down. They were like, Nathan, you got to come down real fast to room 17B or whatever. Like we, we got to have you here because my patient won't take pain medicine. She's obviously in pain and the family just is obstructing. They're being very difficult. They're complaining. They're, you know, that we're coming in the room too much. I don't know what to do. And she was, so she was feeling like this, this duress from not being able to supply pain medicine to this patient. Well, this patient, as I said, is Buddhist and part of the birth and rebirth cycle in Buddhism, I think they call it, you know, your dharma. It's like your life purpose in this wheel, the samsara. In order to eventually relinquish yourself from this process of creation and, and what's the word, reincarnation, you have to work through the most challenging parts of life. The most mm-hmm. challenging, the, the most, the thing we fear the most is death. And that's where there's a lot of suffering, not just physical suffering, but there's actually functional suffering that helps you work through your life purpose. And this is ever present in the philosophy behind Buddhism. So the family was like, no, 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 I talked to them. And they were like, no, 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 you can't give her the pain medicine. It'll disconnect her from her suffering. And I was like, what? Wow. Like as if suffering is functional. This is important to her. And she was grimacing, Mark. She was in pain, but she did not want morphine. Because morphine would have detached her ego from the physical space and detached her from the more subtle bodies, right? It takes you mm. out of the pain so that what? Why would we want to be separate from the pain? I don't know. It's kind of back to what you said about giving birth. Yeah. Is there some important value for suffering at end of life? Couldn't we reframe suffering in such a way that we're not at war with our own nature? Back to that. But we're actually embracing an embodied in the experience that is this transformation of spirit. It's of spirit. And I would say most people would resonate to some level with that versus being drugged out and popped on machines. And then eventually some family member who, you know, is just completely distraught over it decides that they're going to, you know, take you off the machines. Is that, is that the best way to die? Some people might say, yes, I'd say the vast majority who are dying in hospitals or dying anywhere really would have preferred to be held by their son and to be bathed afterwards and to be touched and loved and kissed and fed great food and like to hear their favorite music. Mm. And perhaps we celebrate you as you're dying. Have their back rubbed. Yeah. 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 Or maybe not at all. Share their favorite memories. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe we just hold space for you too. Or maybe everyone shut the fuck up and let me just have my last moment. I'm talking spirit here. Can you let me have a few minutes, guys? You're talking a lot. Let me just check in with with the... uh, (laughs) capital G-O-D, you know? Like, because when a, a baby is born, you talked about that that sort of squeezing through the birth canal and, and, and for sure experiencing some level of pain. Although I know that we said that children don't experience pain, which that I don't know where we got that idea in early when medicine said, like, circumcision's fine. You don't worry right. about it. It's not a traumatic event. Meanwhile, we have all these avoidant men running around who are circumcised who experienced <laughs> a traumatic event early in their life. Yeah. But the do you think, like, in some way, our, our birth interventions are actually the avoidance of the baby unconsciously, the avoidance of the baby experiencing suffering in the birth process? And perhaps the mother too, like there's, because we are so afraid of any form of challenge or pain or anything that we're trying to make life completely pain-free, even in this birth process and death process. Yeah. 
Well, I don't know. I mean, again, suffering can mean a lot of different things to different people. But what I will say is that suffering and struggling, I think, are sometimes used interchangeably. And mm-hmm. for you and me, if we were in the gym doing a really nasty 30-minute workout where like, you are redlining it the whole time, that is a lot of struggle. But are we suffering or are we like fucking mm-hmm. getting off on just the juices, the endorphins and everything right. else? Some people might say, that sounds like a suffer fest. And I would say, bring on the suffering. Right. On the other hand... Right. You know, in birth, like who knows what's really happening there. But to go back to that example of the of the caterpillar that goes into the cocoon and then eventually has to emerge from the chrysocolla, if you actually help it out, it doesn't have the same transition to the outside space. It may even die right there on the spot. And the same goes, I think, when you talk about babies coming in through C-section, are we availing them of the struggle of getting through the canal? And is there some important work that's done in the struggle of being born, whether or not we characterize it as suffering? Stan Groth Mm. is this really famous, I think it was a psychiatrist, and he studied way back in the day, he and Joan Halifax, who's like a Tibetan monk now, somewhere down in Arizona, they actually did work with LSD at the end of life and and helping people confront the existential pain of dying, which is like the pain and duress that comes with not knowing where we're going. Like we all experience Mm. that to some degree, even if you've sat with death, I'm probably just as, you know, apprehensive about it not afraid but apprehensive about it because it sounds pretty intense same yeah so he and joan halifax were studying the use of psychedelics at end of life to help confront this this existential pain as we call it and it like ubiquitously invariably helps people with with the with this notion of oh i'm going to go to this other place and i don't think it's that bad i don't know why but i just don't get the sense anymore that it's so bad i think that we go through the process of dying in the same way, you know, in, in becoming disembodied, right? Becoming one with the cosmos again, in the same way that a baby is a convergence of the subtle bodies at various stages of pregnancy, birth, and, and into their sort of per, postnatal period. And Roth, in addition to his work with psychedelics at end of life, he also did a, a great deal of work on the basic perinatal matrices, which were this sort of stages of birth, and I'll read them to you. He has them illustrated really, really carefully here. There's the amniotic universe the baby starts in, and then it becomes this cosmic oppression, right? There's stuff on the outside forcing the baby out of the birth canal. And then there's this struggle between death and rebirth. Mm. And then there's the experience of the death and rebirth, right? So again, are we dying when we're mm. born or are we being born or being reborn? It's fascinating. And it's fucking great to think about. I never thought about that of like to the baby, they're dying and because we can witness it, that they're actually going from one container to another. Yeah. It's kind of like because we can't witness this, us moving from this container to another, the canal looks different. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I've never thought about it. That's yeah. a bit of a mind fuck. It's a cool mind fuck. Yeah, it's and it's something that I'm it's something that like you don't just read in a book and you're like, oh, listen to this new fun thing. It's something that really, really draws in some there's like some ancient wisdom there mm-hmm. that I think a lot of you know, a lot of our more indigenous societies, the more um animistic societies where, you know, there's a soul in everything may not be as high frequency as a human being or some beings of light that are even at higher frequency than us, but everything has a soul. And it kind of draws in, it draws from that. It's like this baby is being embodied in the process. Like, yes, there's a soul, but perhaps this baby has, still has threads in the astral realm that we mentioned before. And when I was, I actually mm-hmm. was visiting Charles and Stella Eisenstein recently and Stella, his wife brought up this really fascinating idea. Like, what if some babies need to come through the abdomen, as dystopic as it sounds, to excise a baby from the womb? 
especially when it's like 90% of the time in some countries. But could there be some reason that some babies decide not to go through the birth canal and they actually decide, I need to come out a different direction? And by coming through that different direction, does it enable them not to be fully embodied with the subtle bodies, but rather to keep one foot in the astral plane? Like, is this quite mm. literally an angel that's being born in order to provide some healing within the healthcare profession, within our society? That's a pretty compelling argument that I don't think that's anybody really, really has has the language for. But I love no. I love to think about this stuff. It's and it it really does guide my practice. So I think it speaks to like it invites us to a more richer yeah back to the mystery yeah back yeah. to like that we actually have no fucking clue. We have no clue. I don't <laughs> know how anyone can say they know. You know, but that that mystery, that thing that cannot be named, yeah, is. Yeah is when you sit with the tree and all of a sudden you let go of something you never thought you'd ever let go yeah. of, or, yeah. you know, you, you sit with plant medicine and all of a sudden you're healing these things, you know, like I find that to be such a, I did somatic therapy where all of a sudden I'm working on the edges of my nervous system and I let go of this crazy thing. And one actually, since I'm a C-section baby, I'm, I'm certainly a fan of Stella Eisenstein's theory, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I think what's, I did this, meta I went to this talk, I, I think I told you about this offline before, but I went to this talk where it was a psychologist meets shamanism, psychology meets shamanism. And it was at this psychology conference with thousands, like 5,000 people or something. And only like 300 people were in this room because, you know, it was like a little on the edge of, to, to have shamanism intersect with psychology, which I think is a beautiful intersection. Mm. And an important oh, yeah. One. Oh, yeah. Right. And so I did this medicine wheel meditation and in it it's a go to the place where you where your first sort of fracture occurred and i was like oh yeah i know that one that's this and all of a sudden there the meditation was like don't go to where you think it is let it arrive Ooh. and holy shit wow i get to this moment where i see my mom being taken from me and i'm crying and i'm like what the fuck like this was totally it was fucked and i started to cry and i'm like what the hell so I text my dad while I'm in the session, I'm like done, you know, the meditation. And I'm like, because I knew he'd reply right away. I'm like, dad, I just had this vision and it was really, I'm like, how long was I in the NICU? And my dad's like, oh, you, my dad, I love him. He's like, oh, you know, you were in there, you were born it's a healthy baby on a Friday at this time. And you were welcomed into our arms after 10 days to two very loving parents. I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. Thanks. So 10 days. And I had this realization that I was processing being disconnected from my mother for 10 days. Wow. And yeah, it was totally crazy. And I went up to this, the shaman psychologist and I was like, I just had this crazy experience. And she's, and I'm like, and I can't words do it. And she's like, that's because it was pre-verbal. Like it, it has no language. There's an infallibility because, to that. Yeah. Right. And then I'm not shitting you for like three months. I was processing so much. I would just cry randomly. I remember talking to Kai, wow. my fiance, and we were in the, the backyard of her parents' house. And I was like, I just, I just started crying. I'm like, I'm just crying all the time. And it took me about three or four months wow. to process it. Wow. Yeah. It was, it was mind blowing. Talking about, talk about opening up your, your second chakra and letting that shit out. I mean, what a beautiful, I mean, 
imagine just how therapeutic that could be for so much of the world to be able to tap into the very, very earliest traumas that we experience. And and what if we could help right. people avoid those traumas altogether? I mean, that's that's, the dream, that's right? the dream. Yeah. 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 Like what if we could not just help prevent them, of course, but like usher in the, because like at that point I'd been to psychotherapy, I'd done lots of trainings, I'd done I'd done my schooling in positive psychology like I was deep in the game yeah, you know yeah. but it took a shaman meditation <laughs> to blow me through this space that I would have never thought I had challenges with and I know attachment theory would of course speak to all of that kind of stuff but yeah man I'm I, I have just loved having this conversation with you I feel like we could go on and on yeah. about everything yeah. Yeah, totally, man. I'm so glad to be in touch with you. Really, we're definitely kindred spirits, and I, uh, I really just love the um, the grace and the the space that you bring to, um, yeah, to your life, to the people you engage with, and just how you how you go about being Mark Grove. So it's a, it's an honor. Well, it is such an honor to be in your company and to, to be able to hear articulated this intersection between Western medicine and Eastern medicine, that it's not this either, it's not one or the other, but it's this, I love the word alchemical, you know, it's like this yeah. alchemical integration of both. Yeah. And we spoke to so many beautiful things and you spoke to this process of birth being sacred and reverent to the, to the woman, but also to the species and the same about exiting. Like it's a, mm. it's a personal, both are personal. You've really made me think about a lot of things and I've really, I, for the listener, I'm sure you two have been invited to explore things in a different way and shifted our paradigm of thinking. Yeah. So thank you for being a rebel. Thanks for getting a nose ring. Thanks for <laughs> having a mohawk. I'm sure there's people who are like, remember that resident who delivered our baby who had a mohawk? Had a tattoo sleeve yeah, and a mohawk. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> and it is, you know, I always think of that quote that it's like, it's the... It's the square pegs, the, you know, the, the dreamers, the lovers, the rebels that, that really changed the world. And I totally butchered the quote, but everyone knows which one I'm talking about. We all about, know the you know. quote. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and I certainly think you're one of those. And so thank you for being a brave person who's walking a path that really very few people have walked in that area of medicine. Mm -hmm. And even just in the birthing process, you know, like you're reminding us to return to, the, to the earth, to the process, to tribe, to community, and to trust in the natural mm -hmm. process that like nature has, nature knows. Yeah. Nature knows. That's a, that's like a t-shirt. That's a, we need to market those t-shirts. Yeah. Yeah. We a fundraiser. It's good call. Nature yeah, knows. Good call for this birth center, <laughs> the death center. So I'm going to, we're going to definitely link out all the things you shared, like the Stan Stan Groff, yeah, I'll send you some links. Stan Groff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we'll put all those. So for you listening, all the stuff that Nathan has shared will be in the show notes. And where do they find more of you if they're interested in um, participating, getting your your coaching, your your what is it? Doctoring? Is that right? I guess. Word? Is that a word? Yeah, doctoring. Is that a word? Doctoring, yeah. Yeah, we actually had a <laughs> class in medical school. Not doctor something. But. <laughs> no, no, doctoring. Yeah, like doing the things of a doctor. I Yeah, I get I, that resonates with me. <laughs> Sorry, you had so, a class in... Uh... Yeah, no, it was called doctoring. And it was like, here's, oh, really? here's how you talk to patients and this and that. And I was like, this is weird. We're being told how to like make eye contact and like... <laughs> <laughs> am I in the class? What am I doing here? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Where do people find you? Yeah. Belovedholistics.com. That's my website. You can sign up for consultation. I don't take insurance. It's really just out of pocket for people that really want to optimize birth, death, and everything in between. So 
quite a bit of what I'm doing now is is really holistic health coaching in order to keep my allopathic toolkit behind me and really help people improve the health of the soil in order to fix PCOS, cyclic pelvic pain, chronic infection, GI issues and bloating and endometriosis and other autoimmune conditions. Like I'm kind of working on the full spectrum of women's health and some men as well. I, I also see some men, but I borrow from Ayurvedic medicine. I borrow from Chinese medicine. I refer out when I totally need it. I've got all these friends in that space that help me with some more complicated modalities as to how to fix fix certain things. Although not really fixing anything, I'm kind of just guiding people to health. So if you want to work with me and you're or just need like a second opinion, or if you just need an accountability buddy to make sure that we can get your your weight optimal and and get your gut issues under control and help you figure out some of the loose ends, type the loose ends of of your your health journey. I'm here for you. I also work with health coaches, my you know as well. They they collaborate with me, and I have a subscriber program where people can reach out anytime they need sort of like the expert allopathic insight into certain issues, especially if you're midwives, health coaches, birth educators, doulas. So. So that's that. Everything's on the website. I've got a, a podcast as well, The Holistic OBGYN, where we're bringing some conversation around some of these topics into the podcasting space. And I'm also using that to raise money for the vision. I'm thinking about calling it The Portal, this birth and death. Oh. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.